Nicole. And I'm Rachel. This is the Movement Toward Change podcast. We are using dance as a means to cultivate community and start conversation. Today, we are honored to speak with Kelsey Griffith. Kelsey is a performance enhancement and rehab specialist at the McKaylee Center for Sports Injury Prevention, an affiliate of Boston Children's Hospital, Division of Sports Medicine in Waltham, Massachusetts. She received her Bachelor of Arts in Dance from Muhlenberg College, a master's in sports and exercise psychology from Springfield College, and has been a dancer her whole life. She has worked with the NCAA Division III Collegiate Level Massachusetts Olympic Development Elite Soccer Program and with Broadway Performers. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm super excited. So could you speak about your journey to this point and whether a specific event shaped your career? Absolutely. So um, as you mentioned, I studied dance in undergrad and there's a very, very clear moment that actually kind of sent me on this path, uh, whether or not I knew it at the time. Um, So the summer before my senior year of college, I had an ankle surgery that ended up taking me out of dance um, kind of for the long haul, unfortunately. So Uh, I had three surgeries actually at Boston Children's Hospital with the amazing Dr. McKaylee, uh, who I now work for, which is a a pretty cool kind of full circle thing. Um, But I had the surgery, went to college, finished out dancing, and then had a couple more surgeries, still moved to New York with the intention of dancing, um, and found myself so fortunately at a facility called Physio Arts Physical Therapy. Um, So I moved to New Jersey um, before moving into the city and realized um, pretty quickly that I was going to need a job uh, outside of the performance world um, to be able to kind of survive um, as a human, which was a a new experience post-college. And uh, while working at PhysioArts, I was was working administratively helping um, dancers and performing artists come through uh, insurance stuff. Again, all of those adult things that, you know, at 18 or 20, you don't, you don't know too much about, um, kind of navigate the world of sport injury. And while I was there, I was certainly not in the best headspace. I had moved to the city that I anticipated dancing in, um, and that wasn't happening. So not, again, not great headspace. I had an awesome supportive mother living in Boston, of course, sad she couldn't be there in person to support me, but telling me I needed to go see a psychologist, um, to which I stubbornly refused. Um, And at that time said, you know, if they're not a dancer, they don't understand. Um, And really what I, you know, now looking back on, have come to understand that I, my identity was just so kind of uprooted from what I had expected to unfold post-college. And I just didn't have the tools to navigate that. Um, And so while a psychologist absolutely, without a doubt, could have helped me, um, I was very stubborn. And I, you know, wanted the dancer to understand that me as a dancer, you know, I'd had this loss. Um, And so my boss, Jenny Green at PhysioArts, suggested, you know, why don't you go back to school? What are you interested in? So I started exploring, um, interestingly, I had been interested in physical therapy and had kind of put myself at physio arts intentionally thinking, okay, if PT is an option, this is going to be a great place to learn, to get information on post-bac programs. Um, But then as I was experiencing kind of the the post-injury turmoil, um, I was seeing it in others as well. Um, So these Broadway performers coming through the door, 
whose livelihoods were totally impacted by the fact that they couldn't do their job um, or do their job to the extent that they wanted to be able to. And so that was when I was like, huh, there's, there's something more to this recovery. Um, you know, my ankle is on its way. It unfortunately was quite, quite a journey. Um, but I hadn't really addressed the mental side of that injury rehab. And, and the more I look back on it too, I also wonder had I had the tools to cope with it, if my recovery might have gone differently. Um, I wasn't willing to do my exercises. I wasn't stepping through the door excited and ready to put in the effort that I knew I needed to get better. Um, and so now here I am, oh gosh, 10 years later almost, um, having created the job that I really wanted to exist right then and there, um, which is pretty cool. So it's been, again, a, a kind of circuitous journey now ending up back at Children's. Um, Dr. McKaylee founded the McKaylee Center, and I now get to be there doing exactly what I want to be doing, um, which has been really exciting. I love that you saw a gap for this sort of service and filled it yourself. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, That's it, was, so cool. it was pretty, it was really fun. Um, it's been really fun, far more entrepreneurial than I'd ever envisioned, but I am so incredibly lucky to be at the McKaylee Center where they are super supportive of this work and are really, um, you know, trying to continue to bolster the program so we can keep it moving forward. So what is a performance enhancement and rehab specialist slash mental skills coach? <laughs> Very good question. Um, usually that is the question I get. Um, and I always kind of put out like, how long do you have? Like how, where, what direction are we going in this answer? Um, so performance enhancement and rehab specialist is essentially a mental skills coach. So my, you know, we have this longer title um, to kind of incorporate the two facets of my job, which I will, I will go into a bit. Um, but as a mental skills coach, my job is to help athletes address the mental challenges associated with sport. Um, so now the two facets we look at at the McKaylee Center, um, mental challenges simply in regards to performance. So a dancer who's having performance anxiety, um, a dancer who is having trouble uh, adjusting to new circumstances with COVID um, and all of the kind of unique demands this, this current time has placed on our dancers, um, striving for perfection, right? We dancers exist in a realm where perfection is the ideal. And from the time we're able to hear and understand, we're told that perfection is not a thing. And yet here we are every day striving to achieve the unattainable. Um, so that's kind of the performance enhancement piece. Um, but then if we look at the rehab specialist side of things, um, the McKaylee Center is affiliated, as you mentioned, with the Division of Sports Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital. So we work very, very closely with the um, orthopedic surgeons and primary care sports medicine doctors. And as such, I get to work with athletes who are essentially are in, have been, will perhaps be in the same sort of situation that I found myself in in New York. Um, so I work with them applying similar principles in regards to um, sports psychology to help them navigate kind of the psychological repercussions that can come with being injured. So that's kind of the, it's one and the same, um, but kind of two, two distinct populations that then sometimes end up crossing over. You know, I might get an athlete who comes to me initially um, post-op ACL, 
we navigate through their injury. And then as they're starting to get back into sport, we kind of transition the skills more over into um, optimizing performance. So then when you are working with an athlete, um, when it comes to helping them set goals, how do you suggest dancers create these goals? And how do we create goals that encourage us to better ourselves while not feeling like it's overwhelming or unachievable? Absolutely. Um, That's a really great question. Goals are such an interesting topic with everyone. Um, I'll be honest, I mentioned goals and I would say nine times out of 10, I get an eye roll. Um, It's a a little less perceptive uh, now via Zoom screens, but in person, it's pretty clear. Um, And I think what tends to happen with goals is we set them and then we don't come back to them. And so we end up taking time to like work towards this thing or create this thing we want to achieve. And then by not touching back on it, not having an effective game plan, the goal seemingly just kind of evaporates. <laughs> and so for these, these athletes, they, they roll their eyes because they're like, I don't think goals work. Um, and I think the trouble is that we just aren't setting effective goals. So um, it's definitely something I use a lot with my athletes. Um, and we need to, again, create a game plan that works for the individual. So you mentioned kind of how do we set goals that are attainable? How do we set goals that make us feel good rather than kind of we keep reaching for something that then we don't achieve? Um, And I think the biggest, biggest thing to pay attention to is process, right? So nine times out of 10, again, you're going to ask an athlete, well, what do you want? What, like, what is your goal? generally they're outcome based. So for a dancer, it might be making a particular company. Um, it might be, uh, you know, getting a callback, right? So something along those lines. And while yes, outcome goals are incredibly motivating. Um, they're strong in that drive. Um, when we don't get there, of course we feel like we fail. And so I think the biggest piece and something I work on a lot with my athletes is how do we not ignore the outcome, right? Because it's there. Like we can't, we can't disregard the fact that like, yeah, I want that thing. Um, but we use that. And then from there we create those intermediary process goals. So now along the way, you know, for the dancer, say who is trying to, to make it into a particular company. Okay. Great end goal, great results. That's out of your control in essence, right? So you can control the things along the way, and so you're, you're controlling your effort, you're controlling your practice in the studio, you're controlling um, the work and the rest you're putting in outside of the studio, um, you're controlling your confidence, your focus. Now you control all those controllables, you go into that audition, you may or may not get a callback, you may or may not get into the company. But that feeling of satisfaction that I have done everything I can in this moment right here, right now, again, it doesn't take away the hurt if the outcome isn't achieved, but it definitely helps us, I think, stay motivated to continue to seek out those sorts of outcomes rather than viewing it as I failed, which means I'm not worthy or I'm not good enough to continue to to kind of pursue this. So thinking a little bit more about the process rather than the product of the situation. Exactly. And if you think about it, I mean, 
humans are, we're, we're designed to kind of focus on product. And that's, again, not a bad thing. Um, it's kind of, you know, focusing on this idea of intrinsic motivation and extrinsic. They both matter, um, but we just have to find that balance um, so that when failure happens, again, it's not a hit on who I am as a person. It's that, okay, what do I need to change? How do I, how do I adapt and reset and revise that goal um, to perhaps take another path to get there. Um, and that it's a, it's a fun process. I think once athletes realize the value in them and see how, how they can be motivating and that it's not just, here's your goal. And like, it's this, a little like amoeba floating bubble thing. And then it disappears. Like, <laughs> this is what I want. This is how I'm going to chase after it. And if I run into challenges, I'm actually going to know what to do to get around them rather than say, oh, sorry, you know, wipe my hands clean a bit. I guess I can't do that. And then so just to circle back a little bit, you mentioned that dancers should be checking back on the goals that they've previously set. How often do you recommend that they check back in or how often should we be setting new goals for ourselves? Also a really great question. Um, And I'll be honest, like, I'm guilty of sometimes not coming back to those goals, even with my own clients, because, you know, things, things happen, life happens, and, and we kind of get taken in different paths. Um, I would say the, the kind of frequency and duration with which we check back in on our goals is going to be based on individual needs. Um, but I think what's important to keep in mind as, as a bigger picture is looking at long-term, medium-term, and short-term goals. Um, short-term goals can be week-to-week. I like to usually give about two weeks in between because I think, you know, week one, I'm in PT currently (laughs) and I am sometimes not the best PT patient. I will, I will admit to that, which is again, why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, and I know that sometimes week one, my home exercise program gets forgotten. Like it got stuck under the car seat and like, that's fine. And so then I give myself that opportunity week two to kind of come back and reset and start again. Um, which is, I think also a really huge piece of goals overall. Um, again, it's not failure if it doesn't work. It just means that the game plan wasn't set up in a way that created a path to success. And so if I forget week one, now I allow myself that chance to restart week two, tweak some things and figure out that, that new roadmap. In terms of finding motivation, maybe with our goals or with something else, um, What would you say to a dancer when they're faced with obstacles or they're feeling a lack of energy or just kind of that feeling we sometimes have where we're just not motivated to do the thing we either have to do or have intended to do? Absolutely. Again, a really wonderful question. I think um, especially pertinent again right now, given the circumstances of uh, coronavirus and kind of the unique demands that have been placed on individuals to maintain the same level of effort with dramatically different circumstances. First of all, it, it's such an interesting conversation motivation in dancers because they are crazy motivated, like for the most part, right? Like, you, you know, I think back to college and I was gone seven in the morning to 11 o'clock at night. And that was just a schedule. And that's what I knew. And that's what I had lived for so long. Um, and I also think the profession is incredibly unique in that off seasons for dancers don't exist necessarily in the same way that they do for other athletes. Um, and even the time that is considered off season is still this like wicked hustle 
to keep fit, to stay in shape because it's going to be three weeks before the next audition starts anyways. Um, and so again, while motivation is absolutely crucial in kind of maintaining that drive and continuing to chase after what we want, sometimes the conversation of motivation with dancers is more about how do you create some space and allow yourself to not feel motivated, um, which is kind of interesting, right? <laughs> that like I'll sit with dancers and be like, okay, well, maybe you need to step back. And is that okay? And is creating that space actually going to benefit you in the long run? Um, so, I mean, that, that could be a whole entire, entirely different conversation. But um, I think the biggest piece I always go back to with motivation is encouraging dancers to start with just one thing. Again, as go-getters, as 110 percenters, seeking perfection, more, 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 do, 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 uh, it can become overwhelming. And sometimes to the point where it's, I don't know where to start. Um, or I've been going so hard so long and now I'm done and I know I have to keep going. And I just, again, I don't know where to start. Right. So it kind of goes back to the, like, how do I just begin? Um, and I think that one thing at a time can be really helpful, um, whether or not you're making a list of what you have to get done, whether it's, you know, think about you both are in school, right? So you are student athletes, you're dancing, you're going to classes. And so, you know, there are factors outside of our art that impact our motivation. And so I think it's really important to pay attention to those things as well when, when kind of looking at the bigger picture and figuring out like, how do I chip away at this slowly so that the, the bigger picture doesn't become so daunting that I just kind of freeze. Kind of finding motivation and taking it one step at a time rather than looking at the whole picture and trying to conquer it all at once. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I think too, um, I always joke with my clients, I'm big on fake math, um, which also another odd concept. But um, when it comes to motivation, I think it's really important to recognize your best in that moment. And so when I talk about fake math, you might have a dancer who's in the studio one day. Um, again, factors outside of dance might be like they're tired. They have four papers due the next day. Um, mom called and says, you know, the dancer has to come home because X, Y, or Z, like who knows? And so the dancer's in the studio trying to be 110% and he or she is like, I'm, I can't, like it can't be 110%. Our instinct is to fight that, to say, but you have to be. You have to be because every moment matters and someone's always looking and, and in dance, there's always someone who's there right behind you, right? Like, let's not disregard kind of that, that cultural piece of, of the art. Um, and so you fight that, that need to kind of back down a little bit. And the more we fight it, the harder it is. <laughs> so here you are trying to be 110% pushing through, harnessing that motivation as best you can. And in actuality, that fight sometimes gets in your own way. So my fake math comes in where I say, where are you right now? You feel 50%. You might not like it. That's okay. If you can be 110% of 50%, you're probably going to go up a little bit, right? Maybe, maybe get to 60, then maybe get to 65 because now you're feeling good and you're feeling accomplished or satisfied in the work you're doing. So you push a little harder. Let that fake math kind of guide you because for the most part, dancers 
again, they're, they're designed in essence to be 110 percenters. And so fighting it when it's not only gets in your way, let yourself back down, let yourself experience, you know, not being 110%, let it happen. And you actually might end up in a far more productive place than expected. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you're not like fighting that sense of, oh, I'm not at 110%. This is horrible. You're just kind of accepting where you are. Yes. Which is a weird thing. And it, and it is uncomfortable, you know, to say like, all right, I'm 50%. <laughs> like, who does that, right? Like, when have you ever been told that that's okay? Um, and now what I always say, too, with, with the fake math is that being 50% doesn't mean necessarily 50% effort. It's like you're still trying your best, but you're recognizing that in that moment, your best might be just different than what you're, what you're used to. Um, and again, by accepting that place, being present in where you are, chances are your performance is actually going to be, again, better than expected. Definitely. That's such a cool idea, fake math. I've never heard that before. That's awesome. Yeah. I always say to my my, like middle school age athletes and I'm like, this is not real. So don't, don't go home and tell mom, like you learned some new math today. Like (laughs) it's fake math, but I think it, I think it kind of, uh, accurately describes that like place of, okay, if you're 50%, give 110% of it, let yourself be where you are, meet yourself where you are. And you'll actually probably surpass that. So switching gears just a little bit. Um, what is your advice in coping with anxiety when our performance ability is being critiqued, like during a show or an audition or a competition or something like that? Absolutely. So a position dancers find themselves in all of the time. Um, and definitely something that I wish I was a gymnast actually before I was a dancer. Um, and I certainly wish I had had any sort of coping skills <laughs> to, to navigate performance anxiety. Um, I think there's a, there's a couple ways to look at it. So if we're talking in the moment, so say dancers on stage, um, you know, again, let's go with the audition theme. We have dancers on stage, they are being critiqued as to whether they get into a summer intensive, um, nerves get in your way, right? Like we've all been there, but on the other hand, nerves also are functional. And so I think first, sorry, I'm kind of backtracking, but I think first we need to acknowledge that nerves aren't necessarily bad right? Because there's this tendency to think like, I'm nervous, this is not good. Instead of, I'm nervous, and that means I care. That means I want to go out there and be able to do my best. Um, And I think actually two clients who said it perfectly, they didn't even know each other. Um, But within the same week, I had two kids come in, and they each had, I think, different sports, but they each had some sort of performance. And I was like, how are you feeling? They're like, I'm nervous sighted. And I was like, what? You're like, I'm nervous sighted. And I was like, I have never heard that word before, but I really like it. And it, it's perfect, right? Like I'm nervous, but I'm excited. And I can kind of choose how I use those nerves, right? So that that's kind of the ideal cognitive labeling piece. Like we feel something and we can decide this can help me or this is going to get in my way. Um, now, going back to what I was starting with initially, you're on stage you're feeling those nerves and you recognize that they're not helping you. Um, actually, as I was preparing for this, uh, this talk today, I remembered the last time I performed. I love performing. I actually kind of brag about the fact that I don't get nervous. <laughs> it had been a long time since I'd performed and I was 
freaking out, freaking out. Like I didn't realize I was freaking out, but I got on stage. I'm a big tap dancer. And I was like tipping over. And all of a sudden I had this moment of like, you need to, you need to take a breath. Like you need to let this settle. Um, because I was so kind of out of my body that like my balance was just all sorts of wacky. Um, and so I, I said the word, but like breathe, right? So that is your best in the moment tool ever. Um, take three deep breaths as you can right now, of course, in the moment <laughs> there's challenge, you are dancing, you are exhausted. Um, but I think even just thinking the word breathe, right? Like allows things to slow down just a little bit. Um, ideally we can catch it before you're in the moment. And that's, that's essentially, you know, my hope for mental skills is that these become proactive behaviors. Um, right now, most of the time I see athletes coming to me when there's a quote unquote problem, um, such as performance anxiety, right? So at that point you're kind of already in the hole and now you're trying to dig out while you're in the act of the thing that's causing the stress, which is very, very challenging. So again, breathing in the moment, yes, helpful, but from a performance anxiety standpoint, coping with that and the demands of the kind of external stressors, we want to tackle it before it even becomes an issue. Um, and to do that, things we can, that I do with athletes, I have them identify their best. When were you your best? What mindset was in play? Where was your focus? Um, and what happened, right? Write it down. Um, capitalize on past successes. Okay, you're going in for this audition. Tell me about a time where you felt stressed. And then you saw success, right? I call them like your stress turns success moments. Write those down. Um, and then I also do a lot of affirmation work. So helping athletes develop um, I can statements, I will statements. And what I really try to do is actually tag team that with the, the other exercises I just mentioned so that an athlete's statement of I am capable actually comes from their own experience. The more weight there is in that statement, um, the less able they are to disprove of it, <laughs> to say like, I don't believe it because I'm going to look at them and say, well, you just told me you were capable in that moment. So yeah, this moment's different, but we're going to use it. We know it's in there and let's, let's make that stronger for you. Um, and so kind of all of those, those things in, in combination, of course, are going to kind of create the, the optimal situation for the athlete to then go out and be their best. Um, and I, I kind of mentioned, I make them write it down all the time, write it down. My athletes know day one, like go get your journal, where's your journal. <laughs> and it might take a couple years for them to like buy into the journal, but then they do. Um, because again, when you're stressed, the last thing your brain is going to want to do is find something positive. You're already in the hole. So if you night before you do all of those things, past successes, stress, turn success, affirmations day of you're freaking out. You now can actually literally pull out a piece of paper and look at them. It's not going to make the nerves disappear, but it might get you to the place where your nerves calm enough that you can now think rationally. And then you can get to your breathing. Then you can trust in your training. Kind of all of those things start to, to funnel into place. But when we're freaking out, rational thought is just not going to be our friend. <laughs> so we're preparing the mind for the performance in a similar way to we, we would prepare for the dance that we're going to perform. Like we're not just going to go on stage after 
having practice maybe once five weeks ago. We're going to be practicing leading up to the moment. So a similar way of preparing, but for the mind. Absolutely. Yes. You hit, you hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, my, my hope again, in addition to kind of creating a mental skills program that encourages proactive behavior is really promoting that idea that I mean, take a dancer, right? I was saying in college, like my senior year of college, I was in rehearsal of some sort 28 hours a week. It's a lot of time. It's essentially more than like a part-time job, right? So much time physically getting ready. I didn't do anything to work on my mental game. Not a thing, right? Like I knew that I might encounter nerves. I knew that you know, maybe my leg wasn't as high as I wanted it to be. And I was being hard on myself for that. I knew that I was going to fail, but I didn't do anything to, to be ready for that and to be ready to, to work through it. It's not saying that like mental skills training isn't designed to erase the challenges. I say to my athletes, it's not puppies and rainbows. Like what you're doing is hard. And so let's, let's be ready. Let's know it's going to come. Let's know we're going to encounter challenges and have the tools, physical tools, right? These, these assignments or exercises I give to my clients, just like you get stronger and you do flexibility work and mobility work and class training. We got to do the same thing so that when we hit those roadblocks, we knock them down. How do we um, maintain an educational mindset when we're critiquing ourselves or receiving feedback instead of letting that feedback kind of be a part of negative self-talk? This has been, I think, over quarantine, my favorite thing to talk about. (laughs) Um, Because if you think about it, so many of these dancers, athletes are at home having to do the same type of work and they don't have feedback, right? So when you're in the studio, You have a mirror, which can be your best friend and worst enemy at times. Um, You have teachers, you have classmates. When you're at home, you're like, "Ah, is it it good enough? Did I do enough? I'm not really sure because like, I don't have that external information to kind of inform inform that decision. Can I stop? (laughs) Like, are we good, you know? And so I've been talking a lot about how can we be self-critical without being judgmental. Um, because it is important if you think about it again, forget athletes and dancers, like we, and side note, I'll say dancers are athletes, (laughs) you know, it's, it's hard to find that distinction. But when I say athletes, dancers are 120% being included in that, that group. Um, but humans, you know, we have to be self-critical to improve. We have to be able to say that didn't work. Why? What do I do about it next time? Um, whether it's a job, whether it's um, a relationship, whether it's an intramural sport you've decided to join, you know, post-college, who cares? Um, but that self-critique is so essential. We just have to be able to do it in a way, again, that doesn't take a hit at us as, as people. Okay, so that was bad, which means I'm bad at it. It's, okay, that was bad. We can say that. That wasn't what I wanted, not the ideal. So why, how do I change it? How do I, you know, kind of capitalize on that growth mindset and say, we learn from failure, you know? And I think, again, kind of my, my fake math um, vibe with my clients is think about how hard you work when something's not working. 
think about like a skill in dance that you wanted more than anything. Like you busted your butt. You worked day in, day out with like optimal maximum effort to get to that thing. The things we do well, we do them well and we give them effort. But I do think there's a different intentionality behind it, right? So like once you know you can do something, sometimes we go into autopilot. And while autopilot is great, you know, we have this concept called automaticity and that we want to be able to do things without having to give insane kind of cognitive processing to what's going on. Um, but when we're on autopilot, is the effort the same? And I don't know that it is, right? So fake math here, you know, X skill might be a two out of 10 and Y skill, maybe you feel solid on it. It's a nine out of 10. You only have one notch to really see much change for skill Y, but for skill, skill X, you got eight. And so you put in that effort, you put in that intention, you put in that focus, the potential for growth is actually like dramatically different, right? And so when we can look again at those failures and say, this is where I can get even better <laughs> instead of I failed again, I'm not worthy. I'm not enough. I'm not capable. It's all right, cool. Like, let's go. Like, I want to see that change and I want to see that progress. And if I put in the work and the effort and, and get the help I need, however we choose to do it, that self critique actually becomes incredibly functional and kind of from a performance output standpoint, we have greater chance for improvement overall, um, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I think that's so important to look at something that you might think is negative and turn it around and make it an opportunity to improve as like a positive. Um, yeah. And then to critique the movement, not yourself as a person. Right. It's easy to say, hard to do, but it's such an important topic. Yes. And I, I usually say that quite often to my athletes, you know, this is hard. Like these are, you know, thought patterns and behaviors that we have had for years and years. And I always, I joke, I'm not that old, but like I always say my clients are better off than I am. I have 31 years of thinking in one way and behaving in one way. Like they might have 16. So let's tackle it now. Like let's start to change those thought patterns so that our brains become a bit better at seeing failure as opportunity, at finding the win in the failure, right? So if you fail, you learn something. And it, it's so hard too, because I think oftentimes it, it kind of slides into this cliche realm, <laughs> you know, like this is how we learn, like, cause that's what we hear, but it's not necessarily acted upon. Um, and so it, it is a hard thing to change. And I'm pretty candid about that, that it, it takes time and it takes practice. Um, but once athletes see that change, then the buy-in and the work and the effort behind the mental game becomes so much stronger um, and so much more powerful for them in terms of what it can do with their performance. It totally makes sense. Um, so I know we talked a lot about auditions. What advice do you have for dancers who are experiencing rejection? they're strong. <laughs> I really, uh, I mean, it's pretty remarkable the rejection that dancers experience, you know, week after week. Like I have friends who graduated from college and went to 21 auditions that year following and didn't get anything right. And they kept going back. Um, and so I think first and foremost, it's important to acknowledge that it's hard. 
rejection, we're never going to make it fun. <laughs> like it's never going to be like, oh, that's okay. Cool. Awesome. Um, but it's okay that it's not fun. It's okay that it's hard and it's makes you sad and it's frustrating. Um, I think athletes need to hear that you can feel those things, right? We've kind of like socially and culturally identified like sadness and anger and frustration as these negative things that like we should stop and not experience. Um, and again, kind of like the motivation piece, the more we fight those feelings, the longer they're going to stick around. Um, you know, so to feel sad and to feel frustrated and then to figure out how do you move through it? How do you make the next audition 1% better, 1% different, um, and kind of create that controllable for yourself, I think can be incredibly helpful with that rejection piece. Um, I also think it's so important that these dancers know their why. Why are you doing this? Um, you know, when it comes to behaviors that we engage in, sometimes we just do things. Um, and if we don't know what's driving us, when things get hard, it's going to be a lot easier to just kind of call it quits, right? To say, all right, cool, too bad, like next time. Um, or not next time, right? To, to walk away from it before you're ready um, because you don't know how to navigate that sadness, that frustration. When we know why we're doing something and what you know, kind of passions and drive exists behind that behavior, we'll still feel that with the sadness and the frustration. Um, and I think when you can have both of those things existing at the same time, like that's what propels you forward, even when it's hard. Um, and then additionally to, you know, I've talked a little bit about, uh, failures and kind of taking hits on us as people, which is, which is our tendency. If I didn't do that well, it means that I must not be good enough. Um, and I think, for dancers, a really great exercise to do before going into an audition season is take three minutes, set a timer in your phone and write down like, who am I outside of dance, right? Like, who am I as a person and what values do I have? And again, what motivates me, what drives me? Um, because these, these dancers need to know that they are enough and that they're, they're doing enough um, and that the failure doesn't define them right? That it's not the thing that says you don't belong here. It says that, okay, this, this time wasn't the time. Um, and if you want it, keep going. And if you don't, that's okay. Because there's also probably a lot of other really great things that you identify with, um, that you enjoy and that you want to pursue. And that's okay too. So kind of separating ourselves from the situation and using it as a a place to learn from, not to become harder on ourselves when we get rejected. Yes, absolutely. Because again, think about that, that fighting the lack of motivation thing. The, the harder we are on ourselves, the uh, most times the worse our performance is going to become, right? Like we all, most, most athletes can look at me and say, when I'm stressed, when I'm frustrated, when I don't believe in myself, my performance is not ideal, right? Like it's not what I want it to be. Um, and yet it's making that conscious choice to shift that mindset to say, okay, so if that doesn't work, if being hard on myself doesn't make me a better performer, what do I need to do instead? And I think, like you said, separating yourself a bit from that situation and saying, I'm enough, I put in the work, my focus is here, 
this is the situation. And again, it might just not be the situation. Um, and then when that failure comes again, be sad, be upset, and then use that to kind of propel you forward. So what is mental imagery and in what ways can we use it to enhance our performance? So mental imagery is an awesome tool. It's a challenging tool, um, but essentially what it is, is a multi-sensory recreation of a past experience. So something that we have already been through. Um, and mental imagery always stands out to me uh, from grad school. So one of the kind of biggest things we talked about in class though, that just really sticks out is that mental imagery and visualization are two words that are often used interchangeably. Um, and I think it's important to make that distinction because again, the imagery really speaks to multi-sensory recreation, right? So in that experience, in that moment, what did, what did you see? Were the lights bright? Um, I always say when I look off the stage, like I see just like lumps, right? Like, you know, you can't see faces, but you know, there, are, there are things out there. Um, you know, what did you hear? Was it hot? Um, was it cold? Was it cold, but you could feel the lights on your skin, right? So those sorts of like really nitty gritty details contribute to that experience um, and that, that imagery that, that we develop. Um, whereas visualization also equally as functional is more, um, speaks more to completion of a specific skill. So for example, stepping outside the dance world, soccer player taking a penalty shot. They're, at, they're ready to take the shot. They see the ball go in the ball, right? So it's a, it's a quicker moment. It's an isolated skill, whereas the imagery is the experience. Um, and the, you know, the ways we can use mental imagery, it's, again, super helpful. It's a challenging one, I think, to work on with athletes. Um, and I've had questions such as, like, what if I see myself fail? which is why it can be so challenging. And that's, that's a realistic thing. Um, again, I mentioned I was a gymnast when I was younger. I work a lot with gymnasts and imagery can be challenging because I'm working with them on things like back tucks on balance beam. And it's really, really easy to see yourself fall. Um, so in that regard, mental imagery kind of has, it's a spectrum, right? So we can use the imagery to create the feelings before or after a performance, right? So it's less about the action or the dance or whatever, and more about how did you feel, stand, I always give this example, like standing behind the curtain and waiting for it to go up. Like that is such a distinct memory for me as a performer and that excitement and that buzz, like I literally get goosebumps thinking about it. Um, that's imagery, right? So it's not seeing necessarily the performance, so much as knowing how did I feel right then and there. Um, that said, we can then also use mental imagery to see an actual dance or performance, which happens a lot. Um, still, you know, making sure to integrate sight, sound, touch, etc. cetera. Um, the point behind mental imagery is that we are actually strengthening the neurological pathways um, in the same way that we would if we were doing the movement, right? So if it is a dance, if you are working on fuetes, if you're seeing those fuetes done successfully, your brain is still sending that information to your body. And so in essence, it kind of becomes this like been there, done that sort of thing where your mind and body connect, become stronger. And then in essence, and kind of in an ideal, ideal use of imagery, we see increased performance output. Yeah, that's so cool. I feel like, I don't know, mental imagery is always something that you've heard of, but you never really 
knew how it worked. So yeah, it's actually really cool. I mean, you can even a quick Google like sports specific imagery scripts. Um, they there's a bunch. Um, there's a formula called Pet Lab that's quite common. Um, and there are worksheets that kind of, that I use with my athletes to help them, you know, think about the scenario, the sights, sounds, smells, all of that. Um, again, going to gymnastics, like thinking of imagery, like, you know, the smell of a gym, <laughs> like of a barefoot gymnastics gym, like that is so strong in my memory. And if I like utilize that effectively, I can put myself back in the gym and I see myself actually as a kid, which is really interesting. So like, it's a, again, a really, really powerful tool when, when used effectively. Definitely. That's so cool. Um, so kind of switching gears a little bit, but what approach do you suggest a dancer takes when coming back from an injury and what can they do to reduce anxieties regarding re-injury or feeling out of shape or still having some pain from the injury? Absolutely. Love that question. Um, and again, as I mentioned, like, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, and I, it's, it's funny. I found myself, I have a pretty equal split between like the performance enhancement and the return from sport injury kind of clientele. Um, but I think the biggest piece of advice is be patient. Um, you know, as an athlete, your body is your one tool and you need to be nice to it and you need to listen to it. Um, culturally, I think sometimes that listening to your body thing, um, might get pushed to the side, unfortunately. And, you know, you both in, in starting this podcast and having these interviews are working to change that culture, um, and create a conversation around around it, which is just wonderful. Um, but we need to treat our bodies well. Um, we only have one of them. So again, a little cliche, but I think super important, um, from a, a tool-based standpoint, the things I do with athletes to kind of help address the return to sport, return to dance anxiety goals. So again, seeing progress over time, um, breaking the goals down. So an athlete coming back wants to get on the stage. Dancers like, get me back to the studio yesterday. <laughs> you know, that patience is usually not, not super prominent. Um, and it's a daunting task. So, okay, let's figure out how to break that down um, so that you can successfully see that happen and so that you can see success along the way. So it's not like you're waiting until you're 110% full-fledged in the studio like, like you were never hurt, but you feel proud and you feel accomplished with the small goals. Um, and just a kind of quick side note with that, I'm super lucky at the McKaylee center. Um, we have injury prevention specialists and strength and conditioning specialists who I get to work with to help devise those game plans. Right. So I work with the athlete to say, all right, what's the goal? I want to get back to dance. Cool. How are we going to do that? And we come up with all of these baby goals and then the strength and conditioning specialist or injury prevention specialist can step in and say, okay, and here's the physical piece here's how you can achieve those baby goals successfully, um, you know, without ideally re-injury or increased anxiety, et cetera. So that's where like the pairing mind-body thing is so awesome. Um, and I, again, I'm just beyond fortunate that the McKaylee Center was open <laughs> to me coming in four and a half years ago to say like, please, I think this would be cool. Um, and they said, yes. And we, you know, we really have seen such a remarkable collaboration between those two services. So that can be, I think that's huge. The goals, I think wins are huge. Um, 
so that you can collect wins over time regardless of the losses. There might be a day in PT where you feel like nothing has changed. You worked, you worked, you worked, and you walked out and you felt the same way. But for every one of those days, there's probably eight that were, that were good, right? That we left feeling better, even if just a little bit. But again, our brains are designed to say, but the bad is bigger. That's the thing I remember. And so when you can write down wins every day, on the day that is rough, you go and you pull up the wins. Again, it's not gonna, it's not gonna take away the frustration, it's not gonna make everything puppies and rainbows, but it will help kind of encourage that motivation. Okay, 1% better. Like that's all I need to focus on is 1% better, the small goals to get there. Um, another big piece, and I, I alluded to this earlier, um, developing affirmations. Sometimes with injury, athletes start to identify as I'm injured. I'm guilty of it. So, you know, I, I mentioned I come to this profession having been an injured dancer. The performance I was talking about, the tap performance where I was like falling all over the place, it ended up a great performance. But later in that show, I actually tore my ACL, right? So I, I definitely resort to that, that injured identity rather than my dancer identity. Oh, I just get hurt. That's what I do, right? And so sometimes when, when athletes have been hurt multiple times or for an extended period of time, I am injured becomes so much a part of them that the thought of getting back into the studio creates anxiety or creates stress, frustration, all of these things. And if we can work to acknowledge that like you have an injury, that's okay. Injuries can and will go away for the most part, right? but you are strong. You are capable of fighting. You are going to put in the work. And so you start to kind of, again, pull away from the, the injury experience and capitalize on the non-injury experiences and strengths and whatnot to, um, to kind of assist in, in that transition back. And in doing so, we create mantras, we create litanies, so statements of affirmation, um, that can be said before performance, before getting back into the studio, whenever needed, um, and just really kind of work to bolster that self-talk in a way that, that harnesses a supportive return to sport, acknowledging that stress will be there, um, but that's okay. We've been talking a lot with our guests in this podcast about speaking kindly to ourselves, yes. and I think that that idea definitely comes into play here, not... Because we can, we can view it as, oh, I'm still injured or my hamstrings are still weak. Or we can view it as I'm getting stronger. Yesterday, I couldn't even do a squat and now I can do two. Yep, yep. absolutely. The self-compassion, it's amazing. I'll ask an athlete like, all right, you tell me this situation. You went into class, you totally bombed, um, and you walked out feeling like you shouldn't have been there. If your classmate came in, and had that same experience and talked to you about it afterwards, would you tell them that they shouldn't be in the studio or that they aren't good enough to be in the studio or that you think it's dumb that they're taking this class? And again, I, I've never had someone say to me, yes, <laughs> um, which is a positive thing, but um, very readily they're like, absolutely not. That's so mean. I'm like, okay, so why are you doing it to yourself? Like, why is that okay? Um, and 
some of it I think is culture. It's this belief that like the, the harder we are on ourselves, the more we'll get out of our work. And while yes, that can be functional for some, most of us do better, you know, focusing on positive, focusing on, on progress and, and being nice to ourselves. <laughs> so it's, it's a change. I think that, you know, hopefully we're moving in that direction. Um, but it's, it's, again, it's hard to do. What would be the number one piece of advice you would like to give uh, to the movement toward change community? Love what you do. I thought hard about this one. Um, I, I feel like if you are driven by this, this kind of intrinsic passion of love for what you do, um, the hurdles you encounter are going to be just that hurdles. They're going to be things that you can leap over, things you can run around, things you can wiggle your way underneath. Um, if you love what you do, then failure only fuels your fire. Um, and that really speaks again to that motivation. Know your why. Um, when I have an athlete who comes in and tells me they love their sport, even if they're getting up to bat and freezing, we have a place to work from because they want it. They want it for them um, and no one else. And that is just so powerful and so helpful. In this moment, is there a specific quote that speaks to you? So kind of going along that line of failure as fuel, um, I really like the Michael Jordan quote where he says, I failed over and over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. I love that. I like that. Yeah. That's a good quote. <laughs> it's like short, it's succinct, and you like finish it, and you're like, oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have to mess up to figure it out and that's okay. This was wonderful. Thank you yeah. so much. Um, <laughs> if you have further questions for Kelsey, you can reach her on the McKaylee Center website, themckayleycenter.com or on Instagram, which we will put in the show notes.